Well, we're talking about what is a conviction from what you will, from which you will not budge. Convictions in my life have had to change over the years, so I have done a lot of budging. I remember telling my children that I was able to receive my bachelor's degree in four years and told them that they should do the same. I wouldn't budge from there. I didn't tell them that I got my three-year seminary degree in five years because that would not align with my convictions. Most newly married couples have a discussion early on on what convictions they will bring into their marriage. Who takes out the trash? Big things like who cleans the toilets or changes the diapers or gets up at night for a crying baby. They come with convictions that they do not want to change. You probably grew up with some financial convictions that you brought to your marriage until you discovered your lifelong partner did not bring those same convictions. You have discovered that many of the convictions, the lines in the sands that, that in the sand that you draw, do not work sometime in every area of your life. Our president has discovered that as he has drawn lines and realized that he couldn't keep them. Couples discover that. Students discover that. Seniors discover that. Employees are faced with ethical decisions and, and that are made not by them, but by their employers. And they have to draw lines in the sand to say, I cannot or will not do this. Now, what about the lines in the sand that you draw with God? We may not admit that we treat God this way, but what about the convictions that you carry where you would say to God, Lord, your job is to make me happy, and I will put my trust in you as long as you meet the standards for an acceptable life. Some of your demands from the deity might be steady promotions or reliable friends and family members in school. Some of them might be having enough income to achieve the standard of living to which you've become accustomed. Maybe you've drawn a line with God about good health, and if not good health, good health for your children. Maybe you've drawn a line about keeping a good reputation, and if you don't keep that, God has let you down. Most of us may not say these out loud, but we hide these convictions in our hearts. Then life crashes in ways that we never anticipate. If you are a student of the history of the people of God, Jewish history and Christian history, these lines in the sand were often crossed by the circumstances of their lives. Israel was constantly enduring military invasion. The people of God have always suffered from political persecution. They have not been spared from climate catastrophes or personal emergencies. If you've been reading Genesis 37 to 50 along with us, you might also conclude slavery and prison are pretty harsh responses to Joseph's character flaw of arrogance. Does Joseph have lines in the sand with his God? So from church history, from the Bible, from your own experience, answer this question. Is God good to you? Has he ever crossed lines? When life When the circumstances of life seem rotten, can we still say, God is good? I know people who've given up on church, who've given up on friends, even who've given up on God. Somewhere each has drawn a line in the sand that they say not even God dare cross. 
How about when two whole nations are tested and God crosses those lines? One, an already great nation. One, a nation in early development. You see, we're talking about our bottom line of faith here. Joseph is brought to Pharaoh because of his gift from God to correctly interpret dreams. He's not a psychologist, but a believer in a God who has a destiny for him. He has no education, but he listens to God. And Pharaoh has two parallel dreams. One of seven cows eaten by uh, seven emaciated cows. A second of a fruitful stalk of grain swallowed by a drought-stricken head of grain. The twin dreams signify that each will be fulfilled and that each will be fulfilled soon. So the first half of each dream, you might say, is the American dream. For the next seven years, there'll be more food, more prosperity than Egypt could ever handle. Yay, God! God is so good to us. Human nature follows any deity that promises prosperity. We love it when there is always more. And we will bow down to anyone and anything who promises to deliver more. Let me read where we are now with Joseph in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. He is answering Pharaoh about the dreams. And he says, it is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance of the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. What's the bottom line of your faith? He says seven years of famine will follow. Would you draw a line as things get harder for you? When you realize that (coughs) all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten? And there won't be enough for you or for others. What he's saying is the dream has two parts. Are you ready for the seven years of famine or will you deny God because life does not go well? The Nile River will not flow for Egypt. The rains will not come. The fields and flocks will not produce. The gods that they pray to will not deliver for them. And the God they do not worship has foreseen all of this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph has foretold this so Egypt would survive. Not thrive, but survive. And it would be home of the Hebrews who would thrive as they go into Egypt. God loves his chosen people. He loves all people, but he has specifically chosen the Jews to display his greatness to the world. But seven years without some serious planning could wipe out the entire Middle East which looks to the Nile River as its bread basket. What if Pharaoh had not appointed Joseph to save Egypt so it could endure the famine? Would God have crossed the line of an entire civilization? Would God cause such a disaster to happen? Would God dare cross a line that you have drawn for your trust in him? 
I want to share a truth of heaven that may be hard for you to deal with. You may be struggling with it. But you have to understand that you have to keep believing when you understand that God has given permission for evil to happen, when God has allowed for adversity. It is a truth of heaven that we do not understand here on earth. But it is with... um, But it is time for you to maybe reconsider if you have drawn that line and God has crossed it. You see, when Paul uh, writes to the Roman Christians, he clearly lists all the things that can go wrong in a person's life. He holds nothing back, even martyrdom, for the faith in Christ. And that is happening around the world today. All of life's disasters, even the ones we we uh, that we cause cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, which we experience when we place our trust in Christ. And for life on this earth, he makes the statement that we know all things work together for good. You see, there is a person directing the world events. There's a person directing your life who cares about you and what you might become. Last Tuesday, Barb and I went to the Starbucks where she used to work, and we ordered two special drinks, not lattes, but we ordered what's called a flat white, which are similar to lattes, but not the same. Mine was decaf brevi. Hers was uh, skinny with, with caffeine. Barb described the difference between a latte and a, uh, a flat white to me. But apparently nobody described it to the barista. So as I was drinking my flat white, which we order there often, I I thought it was just a little bitter, a little stronger than I'm used to. It just didn't seem as smooth and as sweet. So I I made that comment to Barb. And uh, in, in the meantime, she is there reconnecting with her friends and sharing memories and, 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 you know, she's not worried about a good cup of coffee. But we sit down and she drinks hers and she asks, how is yours? And I say, well, it's a good cup of coffee. It's just not a great one. Now, what happened was that in a flat white, you don't take the entire shot of espresso. You just take the first pour of it and pour it in. That's called ristretto. And more than that, you pour it over the steamed milk. That is a flat white. On my day off, that was the worst disaster of the entire 24-hour period. I was so angry. If you can't make a flat white correctly, why bother be behind that bar at all? Barb, should I go up there and demand that they make a new one for me? And she takes my hand and just says, it's okay. Compare my day off to what happened in Charleston on June 7th, on the night of June 17th. On June 17th of this year, Dylan Roof entered a church of African Americans and killed nine people in an act of racial homicide. One of the victims was Reverend Daniel Simmons. The victims were all black and all Christians. Dylan has has reportedly mentioned or posted that he almost changed his mind because 
the Christians in that church were so nice to him. Well, a few days later, the granddaughter of Reverend Simmons was one was on all the morning news shows in the days ahead and stood out as an example of one who could speak from a Christian perspective. And for some reason, the people who were interviewing her on the Today Show and the Morning Show and all those, they were always uh, focusing on whether the family members could ever forgive Dylan Roof. Atlanta focused on a different perspective, the perspective of evil and how in our world and how God could allow evil to happen. You see, she didn't want to say about what was going on in her heart, but she wanted to talk about her God. So when they asked, how could a good God allow this? And if she was confused about it all, she repeated often in the interviews that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. She didn't go into the Hebrew or the Greek. She didn't look at root stems. She did not get all theological. She just trusted in a simple truth of how God is good, even when we see so much evil going on in the world. She says God allows what is evil to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I googled that statement by Alanis Simpson and discovered that some of the great Christians I know today have been saying this simple sentence to help many people in deep pain. How about you? Can you say this, that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves? Can you say it not just by memory, but believe it? Her trust in God was summarized in one sentence. There are no lines that she has drawn on the sand. She could have, but she decided not to. For many reasons that we cannot imagine, God does allow evil, especially towards people who trust in him. But they are not separated by his love through this evil. If you were a member of that Charleston church, would God have crossed your line? Or could you claim that God is working for good? You see, it gets down really to a matter of choice of the perspective that we will choose and hold in our heart and not just say verbally, but actually mean. It's a choice and, and Jesus was one who put this choice before his disciples because they came with the more conventional view that evil things are always a punishment for sin. Now, God does punish for sin. He will, both in this life and for eternity, most often through the natural consequences of our sin. But sometimes God has something more in mind, as he does in a seven-year famine which follows a seven-year season of plenty for Egypt. See, we need to put Jesus into this message. As as his disciples are at the temple, there is a man at the temple who was begging, who was born blind. And his disciples want a sort of debate, a very essential question. The man was born blind. Blindness, being born blind, is a punishment for sin. So this man... You know, was it for a sin? You know, is he blind for a sin that he will commit sometime later in life after he's born? Or is this man being punished for what his parents have done, for the sins of his parents? 
And Jesus says, no, it's none of these. You have to be thinking more about who God is rather than what your debating questions are. In fact, this, these are Jesus' words in verses 3 or 4. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, this man and his parents have sinned. I have sinned. And I deserve punishment. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed. And as long as it is a day, we must do the work of him who sent me. In the presence of God himself, 12 disciples hear the heavenly reason, God's intention. This man is blind now so that God might display the goodness of his work for the blind man's benefit, for all who know the blind man and what God is about to do, and for generations to come. His suffering, though bad, is going to bring healing and faith in his life and faith for his family and faith for generations to come. All things work together for good. Can you accept that statement? Suffering so the work of God might be displayed for him and for multitudes. You see, when you study this account in John chapter 9, you realize that the healing was sort of the high point of the man's day, and it would be for anybody. But more than that, the rest of his day, because he declared faith in Jesus Christ, was miserable. He lost his religious stature, his religious standing in his synagogue. He lost the uh, encouragement of his own family, his mother and his father. And he stood all alone in his faith in Jesus Christ. I would say that was a very bad day and the day only got worse after his healing. But it didn't change his attitude to who Jesus was and that a good work had been done for him. About 50 years ago, a woman by the name of Joni Erickson, now married Joni Erickson Tata, dove into a pond when she was a teenager and has been a quadriplegic since. She was a believing teen before the accident, but has shown uh, and has become an inspiring example of faith to millions since that accident. You Google the statement, God allows what he hates so he can accomplish what he loves, and you will see Alana is not the only one to state this. Max Lucado, whose books on Joseph I am, you know, I borrow from weekly. Tim Keller has used it to answer some of the great questions that skeptics answer. Mother Teresa has used it. And I'm sure you can go back for generations. Mother Teresa chooses, uh, you know, this way to explain the evils of poverty and disease and abandonment for the decades that she worked in India. But first and foremost, this phrase is attributed to Joni Erickson Tata. Here she is in this picture in a wheelchair. And she has had a fabulous ministry in a wheelchair affecting millions of people. And she just doesn't say it works together for good, being in that wheelchair. She says that I am convinced that God's motive was to thwart the devil and use the wheelchair to make me more like Jesus Christ through it all. Let me read that again. I am convinced that God's motive, God's intentions, was to thwart the devil and use the wheelchair to make me more like Jesus through it all. God works for good. Being more like Jesus 
For Joni is best. Joni's influence over the decades is the work of God more than Joni's. Could you sit in the wheelchair and say, God is good? See, behind this is God's intention. You may not see it in seven years of famine. You may not see it in the personal disasters of your life or in world history. But behind it is God's intentions. So behind the seven years of famine, behind a crime of racial hate, behind a life confined to a wheelchair, and behind whatever confusing evil situations that you may be facing today, what are God's good intentions? The first is like Pharaoh and other powerful people throughout history. We, like Pharaoh, have to conclude there's none like God. Nothing and no one delivers and proves goodness like God does. Without God stepping in and interpreting this dream for Pharaoh, the civilization of Egypt would have disappeared. It would have evaporated in those seven years. The correct interpretation to bad dreams can result in saving a nation from extinction. Evil he permits, but he redeems for his honor and for our good. The second thing I think that is so important is, are you willing to erase the lines that you have drawn on the sand for good? And what intentions might God have on his heart about the lines you have drawn in the sand regarding your trust in him? The faith you will love is a faith with no lines. The faith you will love is a faith where God takes your whole heart. The faith you will love will be a faith that only thrives in adversity. I say this in theory, knowing that I have been spared from so much pain. And I know many of you out in the audience today, as you've poured out your hearts to me and told me what's behind some of the uh, outward appearance of your life, I, I, I can only, I, I can't even begin to imagine the amount of pain you've gone through. And you see, last week's greatest pain was only an average cup of coffee for me. One Christian woman by the name of Kristen Taylor was giving an account of some of the lines that she had drawn. You see, her husband had lost several family members in the same year. And just in that same year received uh, this news that his only surviving brother was diagnosed with brain cancer. Then her husband lost his job. Then in that same year, a seven-year-old, their seven-year-old daughter spends one half of the year in the hospital with six surgeries for a diseased pancreas. Through all this, this woman of faith endures hardship. But through all this, she has also been pregnant. And then their fourth child is still born. And suddenly God had crossed her line of faith. It took a quite a while. She still has made no sense of it all, but she has said in her account that 
I have to give up my line in the sand. I have to offer my entire life, my every minute portion of it, to God's control, regardless of the outcome. And if I have listened to you and the events of your life, the abuse that you suffered in your home, the tragedies that you have gone through with no reason, starting all over again and then having to start all over, all over again, I have heard of your illnesses and you have told me that of those who have betrayed you and those who have used you and those who have lied about you and those who have lied to you. And you do not see where it will end up. But you're faced with the same question. Is God good? Is God good? And the only answer I can give you is the simple one. Yes. Your story is not complete. I invite you to erase the lines that you've drawn in the sand with God. And let him complete the story. If God is good, and he is by his very nature, he will bring about good in your lives. Let's pray. Father, you have spared me from so much pain. I do not know why. But I do know this, that you are good. I know it intellectually. I know it in my heart by faith. But I'm also watching it happen through experience. Many of the convictions I've had, I've not been able to keep. But the things that matter the things, the convictions that really are worth keeping. Lord, you have not crossed my line. I do pray for people here who just sense life is too hard to believe in God. Continue to write their story and let them be able to say through the chapters ahead, that all things, not everything, not every single thing, but all things work together for good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.